please turn with me in your Bibles again to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Today we'll be looking in chapter 20 of 2 Samuel. Isn't the Bible an incredible book? In the Old Testament we see God showing the need for man's salvation and making it very clear that man cannot accomplish that on his own. And in the pages of the Old Testament, we see stories and details, prophecies, songs, prayers, but it points to Jesus Christ, God's answer to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And in the ongoing saga, which is a good way to describe the books of First and Second Samuel, here in chapter 20, we see God's chosen king facing another rebellion. If you are able, would you please stand as I read chapter 20? It's only 26 verses. <clears throat> Be reading from the English Standard Version. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days, and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men, and the Carathites, and the Palathites, and all the mighty men. They went from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword in its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. 
So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Maacah. And all the Bichrites assembled and followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. And he came near to her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he said, I'm listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it, that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But of the, a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Kerithites and the Pelethites, and Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahihud, was the recorder, and Sheba was the secretary, and Zadok and Abiathar were the priests, and Ira the Jarite was also David's priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I tried really hard to get all those names right today because, as you could probably tell, some of you are going, that sounded different from previous chapters. Yeah, some of them did because they were wrongly pronounced in previous chapters. We Texans think we have an excuse, but we still have to try. Now, do you feel like you've heard all this before? Well, you have. 
We hear again in this passage about rebellion in verses 1 and 2. We hear again about sadness in verse 3. We hear about treachery in verses 4 through 14. Cleverness in verses 15 through 22. And David's kingdom being still intact in verses 23 through 26. Really, the human story here surrounds or centers around Sheba. He's introduced to us in the first two verses. And then we see him being pursued in verses 4 through 13. The word pursue appears four times in that little section. Finally, we see him beheaded in verses 14 through 22. We cannot read the scriptures without saying in very graphic terms what sin is and how it corrupts and degrades and enslaves. And there's a message right there. And in stark contrast to man's sin is the holy Lord God Almighty who has chosen to sustain what he created, and save many people in it. And we come face to face here again in 2 Samuel 20 with the incredible truth that we see over and over and over again illustrated and stated that the only way, the only way God's anointed king and kingdom continued to exist was because God desired it to. Chapter 20 picks up right where chapter 19 left off. All this bickering between the northern tribes and Judah continues. And it continues in the form of a worthless man, we read, whose name was Sheba, verse 1. So here's rebellion once again. Why are we surprised to see this again and again? Sin in all its forms is basically rebellion rebellion against God. We just don't want anyone, especially God, telling us what to do and how to live. We want to have the final say. We don't want to depend on God, to serve God, to love God, to honor God, to worship God. Why is Sheba described as a worthless man? Well, because he's rejecting the Lord's chosen king. He is rebelling and calling the northern tribes to rebel. Against who? The Lord's anointed king. Even if he and his northern tribe brothers were treated harshly by the men of Judah, he still had no right to go against David. He knows but does not care about the most recent example of rebellion against the Lord's anointed king. Who would that be? Absalom. 
David's son. We see how pride puffs up and deludes people. And Sheba has learned absolutely nothing. He leads a revolt. One commentator assesses this in a sobering way. He writes, And the same revolt in principle goes on and on in the so-called evangelical church. Their people are perfectly happy to be in a church that has a high view of the authority of the Bible, but let a married woman find another man she prefers to her husband or a husband who's gotten close to another woman at work and wants to ditch his wife, and somehow the authority of the Bible doesn't matter at all. Or someone has been wronged by somebody else. It was too much, the wound too deep, the offense is too vicious, the one could never be reconciled to the other, even though the offender is repentant and seeks forgiveness. No, impossible. Point out to the offended that he'd better never pray the Lord's Prayer again, and that Jesus gives no option but to reconcile. Too bad for the Lord's Prayer. And too bad for Jesus, because this person's rage is too precious to him. Rightful authority can simply go down the tube. There are Shebas in the church. Some of them are evangelicals of the stricter sort. They rebel against rightful authority. They are determined to go their own way, to call their own shots. What are they doing? They lift their hand up against the king. This gives you a whole different perspective about these rebellions against Lord, the Lord's anointed King David in all these Old Testament passages. We can't point our fingers and say, oh, look at them. We need to be seeing what happened and go, you know, my heart is still pretty rebellious. And then we come to verse 3, which seems really out of place right here, and we just want to skip it, because it's horrifyingly right in our face. This is sadness upon sadness. It's like the writer wants us to have to face the sad effects of the ugliness of sin, so he sticks it right here in the text instead of at the end of the account where we could just stop reading early. This is where we notice it, because it just slaps us in the face. And we must admit that most of the time, we just don't want to have to be confronted with details like this. Sadness, any sadness, is not easy to swallow. But one of the remarkable things about the Bible is that sin in case you haven't noticed, is not glossed over and it's not covered up to make people look like they can do it on their own. Even in our heroes like David. David comes back to Jerusalem. Remember, he was chased out 
is just getting back, and then this rebellion starts when he's confronted with his own sin again and all the continuing consequences. <clears throat> and we've seen something similar before, the sadness in the desolation of Tamar. And don't we feel and know that sadness as well in many ways in our own lives? These concubines were doomed for no fault of their own to the weary lot of captives cursing the day probably when their beauty had brought them into the palace, wishing that they could exchange lots with the humblest of other women that breathe the air of freedom because they weren't free. They were now shut up with what we would say is no life. How many of you know what it is to have your lives turned upside down and inside out because of the sin of other people? Many of you do. And the only help is in David's future son who this passage again points to as we see this sadness and desolation. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 says this. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We know who that prophecy is pointing to and what Jesus' victory on the cross and the resurrection means for hearts that are experiencing what we think is way too much pain in this life. It is the Lord who will wipe away every tear, we read in Scripture. And some of us have shed many. And then this verse is gone, and we get to verses 4 and through 14, which get back to the problem of Sheba. And in the midst of pursuing him, we see another example of incredible treachery here. David had learned something from the heartache of his own son's Absalom's revolt. What did he learn? That he had to act quickly against rebellion. Amasa is now the commander of the army. And remember that David replaced Joab with Amasa, which was a political move, which helped temper the anxiety the people felt over what David might do to all those who had sided with Absalom in his rebellion. And Amasa had been Absalom's army commander. David tells Amasa what? He says, you've got three days to muster the troops 
And when that time limit is not met, David appoints Abishai to go on and pursue Sheba. Amasa was either just slow and not really getting after it, or he simply couldn't accomplish the task in the allotted time he was given. We just don't know. But Abishai gathered David's crack troops, including, you notice in the text, the mighty men, and took off in pursuit of them. And notice that David passed over Joab in this action and appointed Abishai, who was Joab's brother, also an incredible warrior. But they both went out to pursue this rebellious Sheba. And in Gibeon, Amasa, we read, came to meet them. And Joab, with no hesitation, and with what is not crystal clear in the English, a sleight of hand that tricks Amasa into thinking he was being peacefully greeted, but instead... Joab used his left hand to thrust his sword into Amasa's stomach. Really bloody scene. In other words, we read about that detail where the sword was, and it says the sword fell accidentally. Joab picks it up, not with the hand that's used in battle, with this one, his left, which means... Amasa wasn't expecting anything. This is vented Joab, is it not? This guy is crazy. And as he walks up to Amasa, again, his sword accidentally falls on the ground. He picks it up, accidentally drops sword, with his left hand, and he proceeds to greet Amasa by grabbing Amasa's beard with his right hand. And this is a customary fashion to give the greeting or the kiss. It's kind of like pull him over here. I know it doesn't work in America, but this is the Middle East, and it's the betrayer's kiss, as it turned out, completely unaware of what was about to happen. The next thing Amasa feels is a sword in his gut. It's business as usual for Joab. No more Amasa as David's army commander. Joab will now command the troops. And as you look at this account, it is very obvious that the men were unmistakably loyal to Joab. Um, the only reason they move Amasa's body off the road is because all the troops were stopping to look at it. Joab is intensely loyal to David, but he's also completely uncontrollable. He doesn't seek David's throne. He is loyal, but he doesn't really submit to David either. No one will take his position and live to tell about it. And I'm going to recount 
the facts here because nobody has. Even if David is the one who appoints his replacement, the replacement doesn't last long. Think about this. Joab exacted vengeance way back on Abner, remember Abner, for killing his brother in battle. There was three brothers. And the other one who was fast runner, remember that story in in the war way back? Joab went after him and, and he got the commander here, Saul's army commander, Abner. So he murdered him because Abner had killed uh, Joab's brother legitimately in a fighting war. So that's one down. Joab killed Absalom even when he had orders not to in chapter 18. Remember the man saw Absalom hanging in the tree helpless and he wouldn't kill him because he remembered David's orders. He went back, told Joab. Joab grabbed a bunch of javelins and let him have it. He said, do it, do it. He and his armor bears. And now Joab will not tolerate Amasa being David's army commander, so he murders him. Joab will not be controlled within the kingdom. There is no such thing as acknowledging the king's sovereignty and disregarding his will. And yet that's exactly how Joab lived. This is an incredible warning to each and every one of you and to me, and to everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. Why? Because such people who acknowledge the king's sovereignty and disregard his will have no place in the kingdom that is eternal. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who, what? does the will of my Father who is in heaven, Jesus. I think we need to see what happened to Joab. Turn over to 1 Kings, the next book, chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. 1 Kings 2, 5 and 6. Now, this is David's instructions to Solomon, who inherits the throne, on what he should do as he assumes control. So David's talking and giving his more or less dying wishes here, what what he should do. Moreover, you also know what Joab, the son of Zeruah, did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals of his feet. Act, therefore, according to your wisdom, but do not 
let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. What do you think? Yeah, this is serious. So the question we need to ask is, how many professing Christians acknowledge the Lord but inwardly rebel against him to their very core? It's the same thing. Beware of Sheba's, beware of Joab's. Sheba's not the only culprit in this. And then, in verses 15 through 22, we get another crazy story about cleverness and wisdom. Notice that by verse 15, the troops pursuing Sheba are referred to as who? The men who were with Joab. Men followed Joab. He was a natural leader, warrior. You knew something was going to happen if you followed him, and it was probably going to be worse for the other guy. They caught up to Sheba at a place called Abel of Beth Maacah, which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, way north. It doesn't look like Sheba <coughs> gathered much of a following as he went hightailing it through the north trying to get people to follow him. But it does look like the people of this city joined him. Verse 14b, though, can be rendered, and all the Bichrites assembled, which means they too joined him. Now, Joab and company began to prepare for the all-out siege of this city. The reference to the mound and the ramparts being built, built to breach the walls. When a voice calls out for Joab, isn't this incredible story here? A wise woman, says, gets his attention and makes her plea, and she pleads for her beloved town. Why? Because she knew that an all-out siege would mean what? Destruction, not only of the place, but most of the inhabitants, if they had sided with Sheba and wanted to protect him. In other words, this town's going to be gone, and so are the people that are in it, because they did side with him, at least at first. So she accuses Joab of wanting to destroy the city. Let me ask you a question. Think she had heard of Joab before this? I think this guy's reputation went way ahead of wherever he went. She knew that he was a destroyer. In the ultimate irony of irony, look how Joab answers her charge. Verse 20. Far be it from me. Far be it that I would swallow up or destroy. We just went through the little history of Joab. Joab says it's only Sheba he wants because Sheba has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone and I will withdraw from the city. 
Now, the woman makes what seems to be an incredible promise and then delivers on it. Sheba's head is thrown over the wall to Joab. Persuasive? All she had to do was go, hey, see this army? See the mound of dirt? See the rampart being built to go over the wall? How many of you guys think there will be anybody in here left where history, this is a rebellious guy. Just throw his head over the wall. That's the only hope we got. So somehow she persuaded the people of her town to turn on Sheba to save the city. Very clever, very wise. Her sharpness ended up saving her town. Now, we've talked about this before, but there's been several instances in these stories in 1st and 2nd Samuel that illustrate all kinds of wisdom. True? You remember those? We've seen all kinds. There's been wisdom in a neutral sense, which, is, which means that this is the kind of wisdom that has the skill to know how to be successful. We've seen counselors to David that knew how to get things done and they weren't really for him. They ended up betraying him. We see all sorts of people like this in these stories. Why? Because there's all sorts of people like this that we know as well. And we've seen examples of wisdom used for evil purposes. Purposes. The most glaringly sickening example of this in these two books is Jonadab's counsel to Amnon on how to take his sister Tamar sexually. Pure wickedness and darkness. Horrid story. Or another being Absalom's cleverness, cleverness, wisdom, skill to be successful in trapping and then killing Amnon after all the event. And Absalom's gaining the loyalty in the hearts of the people as he hung out at the gate of the city, talking to everyone, promising them that he could hear their case and do something about it. Garnering what? Loyalty to undermine David, his father. And the list goes on and on and on and on. But we've also seen wisdom used for good, too. How about Nathan when he approached David to confront him with his sin with Bathsheba and killing her, having his, her husband killed? How about David's wisdom in enlisting some priests named Zadok, Abiathar and Hushai to be undercover listeners to what's going on when Absalom chased him away from Jerusalem. He had those three faithful guys still there that ended up being used by God to get David back on the throne. And this skill of knowing how to be successful, we see can be corrupt or it can be legitimate. And here in chapter 20, this 
wise woman saves many lives by somehow convincing the city to give up the rebel Sheba. In other words, the wisdom here is beneficial, but it's not always so. One huge lesson then, if we can look at these books together, is that wisdom that's not mixed with sanctification is lethal. And we pray that we don't meet people like this in this life, but you're bound to. Verses 23 through 26, we see that chapter 20 closes with kind of a roster of government positions. And this serves to close this section of 2 Samuel, chapter 9 through 20. Chapter 9 through 20 in this book have been about David's history after he did assume the actual throne of Israel. How would you describe it so far? Glorious, peaceful, good families, consistent worship, loyalty. Anybody? David himself summed it up in Psalm 51, 17. Let me read what he said. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. See, one of the main points is that it's the Lord who sustains his kingdom even in the midst of all the strife and sin and tragedy. And it's been one story after another of strife, sin, and tragedy through this whole account. But he learned, David learned the hard way. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Logically, this is what we need to hear. Because we are sinners, we need to be saved. But because we are proud, we need to be broken and humbled. Every single one of us. That's what we don't like. Because many of us have grown up thinking, oh, if I just prayed the prayer when I was however old and I've got my ticket to heaven, I can do what I want now. I don't have to pay attention to God's word. I don't have to worship with God's people. I can do what I want. Well, what do you think First and Second Samuel teach you about that? You're right. It doesn't cut it. It's not true. You can't do what you want. And when we realize the greatness of God's grace in coming to save us, we should want to humble ourselves in serving him and loving others. And it sounds easy at first, but we find out that is not so easy unless you do have a broken and contrite spirit because this keeps boiling up me keeps boiling up 
and our lives are just swirling with brokenness and hurt feelings and betrayals. And if that's your life, it's a wake-up call. Those things are going to come, but how you respond or if you're an instigator needs to be dealt with. We should be glad to serve him, honor him, and love him, and worship him. If we really begin to get this, get what? That he is king and we are not. And even the king of Israel learned that the hard way. And you know, he started off pretty good. Goliath. But his life was just beginning then. We've got to stay on this path. And usually it means, if we've learned anything, that finally we start admitting we need to learn this. He is king. We is not. We are not. This is his book. And we will rebel if we say we are king and he's not. That's rebellion. Make sure he is king and we are not. Do you really get it? Do you know in your heart that your pride keeps you from knowing God? Do you realize that if you don't or won't recognize your own prideful spirit, that the Lord will break you and humble you? I mean, think about it. How many people get decrepit and just bent out of shape the older they get? And they're wondering, what in the world is wrong? What's wrong? Every one of you can answer that. We just learned what's wrong. What's wrong is that they've never knelt before God, really. They want to live the way they want to live, think the way they want to think, maybe come to church and go through the motions, but Lord, Lord, hopefully Jesus won't say, I never knew you. If we love him, if we acknowledge that he is our Savior and Lord, we will want to serve him and we will grow in that as we get, as we get older. Not diminish it, which means he has the last word in the areas and circumstances of our lives. And as we come to communion this morning, that's the message of why he came, is it not? He came to save us from God's condemnation, but also from ourselves. Did he not? And we celebrate this meal because it's such a, an incredible, visible, and physical reminder of what he knows we need to be remembering. It needs to be a part of us. It needs to be our constant pursuit.
which is, he needs to be our constant pursuit. That he had to live the perfect life that's demanded of us. Well, I don't like that. I mean, I, I think I'm good enough that I can stand on my own, and when he weighs it, you know, I'll come out. No, you won't. One sin is deserving of death. If you're guilty of one, you're guilty of all. And every human being is. So then all of a sudden, the King of Kings, God Almighty, sending his own son to do what we can't do, becomes amazing grace to us. Because it's the last thing anyone would ever think of as far as the plan on how we can know God and stand before him clothed in his son's righteousness and being able to enjoy him forever and ever. That's why this is so absolutely incredible. He is our life. 